right, we are hopping into week four of our Delight in Doctrine series. I've had the privilege of standing on the shoulders of Taylor and Nick and Reed, who have brought us uh, uh, just some really good um, weeks of teaching. And so I hope this has been um, enjoyable for you, whether you have been here with us in person or whether you've been catching us later on the podcast. I know it has been a blast as a as a pastoral staff and um, just personally as we have gotten to prepare for this. And so before we hop in, um, let me just open us in a word of, of prayer. God, we thank you just for the opportunity that we have to hop in and um, dive into what your word says, God, that we can grow in our knowledge of what you say about who you are. And God, how important this is for us as a church to, to know what we believe about you. As God, we, we seek to make you known. And so I pray for this time that we have together. I pray that um, the words of my mouth would be pleasing to you, God, that the meditations of my heart, God, that the preparation of my heart, God, uh, uh, would be clear and evident here, God, that um, anything that is unclear would be clear, God, that um, if, uh, if we leave this time together with maybe more questions than maybe we came in with, God, that you would give us knowledge and discernment and wisdom as we seek to grow in you more and more. God, I thank you for your spirit that comes alongside us as our helper to, as we seek to understand you more. So God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts and to our minds during this time. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, before we hop into the doctrine of Christ or Christology, uh, let's hop into what the Word says. So uh, we're going to be in John chapter 14 to start with. John chapter 14, we're going to hop around a pretty good bit. So uh, have your Bible ready or uh, have, your, have your fingers ready as you're typing in um, Scripture maybe in the Bible app um, as we hop in together. So John 14, I'm going to start reading in verse 1. John 14, starting in verse 1, says this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, then you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Now, we hear there Jesus giving us a pretty clear picture of who he is. Gives us a good reinforcement of kind of some things that both Nick and Reed have talked about when we talk about the Trinity. I, um, I said earlier when we started that I'm standing on the shoulders of a couple of guys who have gone before me. So Nick and Reed did a fantastic job of reinforcing kind of what we believe and what scripture says about the Trinity. Um, something that we acknowledge on the, on, the, on the front of that is that we don't see the word Trinity expressed explicitly and so there are common threads and um, different things that we have to do to connect scripture um, as to what God says about the tr Trinity and so this th 
this third person of the Trinity, Jesus, talking about coming not only from the Father, but being a perfect picture of the Father. He says, the Father dwells in me, and I do his works. So that's gonna, that is going to frame so much of what we talk about. So when we talk about Christology, what are, what are we talking about? Okay, so Christology, the study of Christ, or an easier way to say that would be the doctrine of Jesus. And so Christology d defined for, the, for our purposes here will be who is Jesus, why is Jesus unique, and how are we to think and speak about him. So Christology is just who is Jesus? Why is Jesus unique? Why is his person of the Trinity unique? Not separate, but unique. And how are we to think and speak about him? I'm going to reference a couple of creeds. Um, the Nicene Creed coming out of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. We're also going to talk a little bit about the Chalcedonian Creed uh, coming out of the Council of Chalcedon in 450. 1 AD. Something just to keep in mind about when we talk about creeds or systematic theology. These are coming from uh, the church's historical um, theology of what has the church believed over time? How has the church responded to maybe false teachers? We've been talking on this Sunday mornings um, through 1 John, talking about how there will be false teachers that will come. And so we are to weigh what false teachers say against Scripture. And so um, that is what the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Chalcedon and other church councils that had to respond to false teachings about who God is, or in the case of these two councils in particular, looking at who Jesus is, because obviously that is crucial as the church if Jesus is the head of the church and we have a false understanding of who Jesus is then it would be very difficult for us to stay on the right track if we have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is so let's look at um, a couple of things that the early church just in the first uh, uh, four or five hundred years so in the first four or five centuries of the church while the church was still young and and still maturing um, let's look at a few things that popped up that necessitated these councils and necessitated the church leadership to come together and and look at what scripture said and make statements of what the church believes and so um, what we see happening um, in the first few centuries we see something called um, and just bear with me on some of these uh, n names and some of these heresies. They're named after some people whose names are a little bit hard to pronounce. And so uh, I will most likely butcher the pronunciation of several of these. So uh, feel free to send any corrections to 300 West Main Street attention at Taylor Rutland. And so the first kind of heresy that uh, that we see popping up in the early church uh, was Ebionism, um, also known as adoptionism. And this view of Jesus that was incorrect um, denied the divine nature of Jesus. And basically what this um, viewpoint was propagating was that Jesus was just another human on earth that God chose and then endowed with divine power to do the purposes and to do the things that he had called him to do. And so he wasn't a part of the Trinity in the same way that God is a part of the Trinity. He was just a person that God endowed with the power to do what he had called him to do. And then we had um, in the third century what popped up was um, something called Arianism, and this denied the genuine deity of 
Jesus. We know, and one of the things that we will discuss is that Jesus was two persons. He had two aspects of his nature. He had his fully divine nature, and he had his fully his fully human nature. We call that the hypostatic union. You're going to hear that term quite a bit. And the hypostatic union is just the combination of Jesus's two natures, his human nature and his divine nature. And so we see um, Arian, who, who was a leader in the church in the third century, he was a songwriter, and he was able to, through the hymnody of the church, through the songs that were being written of in the church, he was able to bake in some of his misinterpretations of passages like Proverbs 8.22 or Psalm 45.7 and 8 or Isaiah 1 verse 2. He misinterpreted and inferred and sometimes explicitly stated that at some point God created Jesus. And so the assumption of Jesus being eternally begotten, the eternally begotten Son of God, he, de he denied this aspect of Jesus' nature. And so at some point, Jesus was created. He was fully divine and fully human, and this hypostatic union happened, but at some point, he was created by God, which makes him lesser than God. And as we've looked at God and the Holy Spirit, no one person in the Trinity is less than another part of the Trinity. They have different roles, and we see... Um, uh, uh, their role in scripture doing different things, but we don't see any of them as at one point not being and then at another point being. And so this idea of Jesus being the begotten son of God in human terms might lead us to think that at some point there was God and there was no Jesus, and then at a later point there was God and then there was Jesus. But we see even in the earliest accounts of creation, we read in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus was always a part of the Trinity. There was no point where there was God and there was not Jesus as well. And so um, Arianism became popular in the third century due to the prevalence and the popularity of a lot of the songs that he was writing. And so just as a small little preaching moment, this is primarily going to be content, not preaching, but just as a little um, aside here, that is why we as a church, our church leadership and our worship leadership, obviously headed up by Reed, are so intentional and discerning about the songs that we as a church sing corporately and why we as individual Christians need to be discerning about the songs that we use, not only in, in corporate worship, but also in our own personal worship. Because if you've spent any time around church, you can probably agree with the statement that has been said many times that you may hear the best sermon of your life, but you don't walk out of church humming the sermon. Songs have a way of taking root in our heart and coming back to us in a way that sometimes even an incredible sermon does not. And so these heresies that Arian was propagating in the third century necessitated the emperor Constantine to call the Council of Nicaea in three 25 AD, and this council uh, put together the, the Nicene Creed in direct response to um, Arianism that denied Jesus's full deity, his full divine nature, in that he was with God from the beginning. So um, let's read the Nicene Creed together. If you want to look that up, the Nicene Creed begins like this. 
We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is, seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father, through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven by the power of the Holy Spirit. He became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and um, apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism. For the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And so this was a regular part of church history following the Council of Nicaea. The Nicene Creed is not scripture, but it is supported by scripture. It is something that has stood the test of time throughout church history, and it reinforces what we believe not only about God and the Holy Spirit, but about Jesus and his d divinity. And so um, Arianism popped up in the 3rd century AC, but that was not the only part of Jesus's deity and nature that was misunderstood. Later on, we see Apollinarianism come up. And this was propagated by a teacher named Apollinarius that taught that if Jesus was able to be tempted in all the ways that we read that he was, like in Hebrews chapter 2, we um, read that he is fully our brother. Uh, we read um, elsewhere in the book of Hebrews that he is our high priest who understands because he has been tempted in all of the ways that we have. And so Apollinarius taught that if he was tempted in all the ways that we are and yet remained sinless, then he could not have been fully human at all. He believed that if Jesus was fully human and experienced all the temptations that we have, there was no way for him to remain sinless. And thus, he must have not been fully, fully human. In this particular heresy, we don't see much rejection of the divine nature of Jesus, but we lack the recognition that Jesus was fully, fully human. And we're going to talk later about when we look at the work of Jesus, it was necessary for him to not only be fully divine, but also fully human. That Hebrews 2 passage explains that he became fully human, not only to become our brother and experience all the things that we experience, but also to destroy the devil. So he had to be fully human, and he had to be fully divine. Later we see Nestorianism pop up, and this denied the unity of his humanity and um, divinity. The uh, person who propagated most of most of this heresy ended up getting into some rough politics in his day and um, passed away early. And a lot of his writings were destroyed in kind of the turmoil um, around his life. But some people who latched onto his um, heresy, uh, 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 a a teacher who um, ended up propagating something called Eutychianism, all right? Once again, apologize for all of the pronunciation here. The denying of the distinction 
between the two natures came because the divine and the human nature were recognized, but this teaching put forth a theory that God at some point combined a human nature and Jesus's divine nature separately. That Jesus was at one point fully divine and then combined the human nature as soon as Jesus was born with the divine nature. Not that it was one seamless act. And it just created confusion between at what point was Jesus divine and at what point was he human? Was there a point that Jesus existed that he was not fully God? And scripture does not support any statement that at one point Jesus became divine. He was always divine at every point that he was a man. And so this hypostatic union was one seamless union. There was not a point where there was a human Jesus where he was not fully divine. And there was not a point where Jesus appeared divine before he was human. And so the importance of us knowing who Jesus is is because when we look at the historical Jesus, we need to understand, was he real? Did he really reveal the Father to us? And if he didn't fully reveal the Father to us, are there aspects of the Father that we do not know? Because Jesus is the revealed picture of God in the flesh. Did he actually do what the Gospels claim? All these questions are important for us to answer, and they lie in us understanding who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis has a great quote where he says, Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he had to be telling the truth. And let's look at the truth of Scripture. We read a little bit of John chapter 1. Um, I'm going to hop down a little bit. We read the first few verses and um, continuing on in John chapter 1. John says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the true light, which gives light to everyone. He was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born. Born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so as we look at who Jesus is, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And so we see Jesus giving the full picture of God. We read at the beginning Jesus telling disciples like Thomas and Philip. I always identify a lot with these disciples who just keep asking these what look like to us on this side of the cross as obvious questions and answers. But Thomas asking where he was going and how would we know the way. And Philip saying, show us the Father, and that would be enough. And Jesus saying, I have already shown you the way. You have known my father because you know me jesus says i am in the father and the father is in me john 14 11 
And so if he is in the Father and the Father is in him, there is no separation between him and the Father. When we look at John chapter 20, uh, verses 30 and 31, John says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In his name there is power. There is power in the name of Jesus because of who he is. Who is he? He is a perfect imprint of the Father. He's not just a poorly drawn picture. I could go into a museum and look at a piece of art and try to draw it again, and it would be a poor imitation. Even if I was the most talented sketch artist in the world, I could not give you, even if you showed me a picture of God, I could not give you the same level of perfect imprint, of a perfect image of who God is. But Jesus could. And so when we see Jesus, we see God. And so it's important for us to know who Jesus is. Simon Peter, another disciple I identify with, he has a habit of putting his foot so far in his mouth sometimes that he might have a hard time at getting it out. And in Matthew 16, Verses 15 through through 17, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and starting in verse 15, he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Another way to read that last part of that passage is, Simon Peter, that had to come from God because I've heard you talk before and nothing like that has ever come out. So it had to be from God because that was gospel truth. And we see Jesus revealing himself over and over and over again because we struggle with who Jesus is even now. Let's look at the book of Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. It's talking about the authority of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. The fullness, not a part, not a poor imitation, but the fullness of God. And so Jesus revealed himself fully as God. And when he's talking to his disciples in the book of Matthew, I love this exchange between him and Peter because if you look at where they are, they are in a place where there was worship happening to other gods. And so Jesus not only chooses the best way to reveal himself to his people, but I love how he also picks the best place. In a place where so many were looking for their salvation in all the wrong places, Jesus chooses to reveal himself to his disciples. And that's where he meets us as well. And so when we think about the hypostatic union, when we think about God becoming man, deity becoming human, the divine and the human natures coming together, why is our understanding of this hypostatic union or this understanding of these hypostases, right? The hypostases being the being the natures of Jesus, his two natures coming together. 
Why is it important for him to be fully, fully man, fully human? Well, well let's look at John chapter 8, verse verse 40 but now you seek to kill me a, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God this is not what Abraham did you're doing the works that your father did this is Jesus talking to people who are trying to kill him man brought in sin and and death we see that in the Book of Romans, Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19 say, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to M Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, whose, who was a type of the one who was to come. That's a little preview of our discussion about, this, about Jesus being the second and better Adam. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so we see a picture of Jesus as the second and better Adam. And what, we, what I want to key in on here is one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. This is referencing our sin and the nature that we have inherited as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. We are all of the seed of Adam, and we have inherited a sinful nature. And so one man's disobedience, looking at this passage in Romans, led to many being made sinners. But for Jesus, one man's obedience, many will be made righteous through him. And so because man brought in sin and death, the one who brought righteousness also had to be fully man. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2.5, which says, For there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Let's look at Hebrews 2.17 and 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And so the full humanity of God is not only because man brought in sin and death, but in order for Jesus to become a true mediator and high priest, he had to be fully man. He had to be fully tempted and tried in order to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He himself suffered when he was tempted. So how much better is he able to minister to us who are now tempted on a regular basis? 
There is one God, 1 Timothy says. There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. What better mediator than man and fully God that are one? Jesus, a man of two natures, the third person of the Trinity, two natures, fully God, fully man, at the right hand of the Father, mediating on our behalf. So he had to be fully man because that one act of righteousness or that one man's obedience led to our righteousness through him. And so his full humanity was necessary because someone who was not human could not be be the sacrifice that we needed. But it wasn't enough for him to just be a man, to just be a person, to be fully human. He also had to be a sinless man. He had to be a sinless because he had to be a worthy sacrifice. In order to bring us from life to death, he had to be fully man, but he also had to be a sinless Man, well, let's look at Second Corinthians five twenty one. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Hebrews four fifteen. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sins. In order for him to be a worthy sacrifice for us, he had to be sinless. He had to be able to not only be the sacrifice that we needed in full human, because humans were the ones who were broken, so there had to be a human sacrifice but that person had to be without sin had to be the unblemished lamb to cover the sins of of humanity and so we look at the full humanity we see the sinless humanity being the first half of the hypostatic union and now the full deity, the fully divine nature of God. Let's look at John 1, 1 through 3 one more time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He was there at creation. We see him as creator. We see him as with God in perfect fellowship. We see him as God. We see him as the light in a dark world. He revealed God to us. John 1.18 says that no one knew God. No one has ever seen God until we saw Jesus. Hebrews 1 uh, says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he not only revealed God to us, a perfect imprint of God for us but after he was the sacrifice for us after making the purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high 
fully man, fully God, at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 12. And by that, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And so he not only needed to reveal the true nature and the true picture of God to us, by being an exact imprint of God, but only somebody who was fully divine could pay for an infinite amount of sins, so past, present, and, and future sins, in a finite amount of time. Only a fully divine person could pay for an infinite amount of sin to absorb an infinite amount of wrath in a finite amount of time. An infinite amount of sin in a finite amount of time. The writer of Hebrews says he died once, a single, sac a single sacrifice for all, once for all, before he, before he sat down at the right hand of the of the. Of the of the Father. If he was just fully human, he would have to die an infinite amount of times for the sins of the world. He had to be man, but one man could not pay the cost on its own. He had to be a perfect man, but he also had to be fully divine. So us understanding this hypostatic union, this union of the of the natures of God, knowing who God is, is essential, who Jesus is, is essential for us understanding what Jesus did, the work of Christ. So the person of Christ, it's key to understand the two natures of Christ, the fully man and fully divine nature of, of Jesus in order to look at his work. So let's then look at some of his work. I'm obviously not going to be able to look at all of the different roles that he played. I'm just going to kind of hit some highlights here. We could be here for weeks at a time uh, to look at all of the work that Jesus Christ did. But let's look at the work that he did. John 13, 13. Christ is the teacher. You call me teacher and Lord, for that's what I am. I'm teacher and Lord. I'm here to teach. I'm here to show you who, who the Father is, but I'm also here to teach. And might I say, he was very patient with some very frustrating disciples, as we've already looked at some case and point examples today. He was also Christ, the conqueror, Christus victorious. 1 John 3, 8, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. He came to overcome sin and death. He came to conquer. He didn't come to win a battle. He came to conquer and win the battle once and for all. Christ is also the second Adam. Romans, Romans 5, 19 that we looked at earlier. One man's sin led to the fall, but one man's righteousness atoned for the sins of many. One man's obedience made us righteous. And so Christ, not only being the second Adam, but being the better Adam. He's the new, he's the better Adam. Christ was not only the teacher, Christ was not only the conqueror, Christ was not only the second Adam, but ultimately Christ was our atonement. Christ was the atonement. He was the perfect Lamb of God, John 1, 29. He was the suffering servant that the Isaiah 53 prophecies point to. He was the propitiation, or in layman's terms, he was the appeasement of the wrath. He was able to appease the wrath of God, 1 John 4.10. But he wasn't just the appeasement of the wrath. He was the removal of the sins and guilt. He not only deflects the wrath from us to himself th 
through his death, but he also, for those of us who are in him, he removes that sin, removes that guilt, so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us, he doesn't see our sin, he sees Jesus perfect in his righteousness. There was no way we could do that on our own. Christ was our atonement. And so the work of Christ is more than this, but it is definitely not less. He was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. The work of Christ. It's, it's awesome that we're talking about this in the weeks leading up into Easter as we look ahead at Christ's resurrection because understanding the work of Christ ultimately is moot if we don't fully understand the resurrection. The resurrection is why we live with the hope that we live in. If you read uh, the passage where Jesus is approaching Lazarus's tomb, Lazarus has been dead for several days, and he comes upon the tomb and the and the and the and the mourners and he sees them weeping as those who have no hope and Jesus first he weeps but not because he's grieving Lazarus's death he weeps because it they are grieving as those without hope as if hope was not coming he says did you not know i was on the way did you not know that hope was on the way jesus is the embodiment of our hope because of his resurrection. So let's look very briefly at his resurrection to fully understand who Jesus is. So looking at the resurrection very, very simply here, resurrection being defined as Christ rising bodily from the dead and resulting in an empty grave or an empty tomb. And that's very important. He not only rose from the dead, but the tomb is empty. Now, why was that important? Why was that act important? Why couldn't he just die for our sins, be the sacrifice that we needed? Well, first of all, it validated the 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 um, the authority and the truthfulness of Jesus and his and his and his message all 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 throughout the Gospels when he's pointing to his death and his resurrection. Matthew 12, 39 and 40. John 2, 19. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, referencing that. The truthfulness of Jesus and his message can be validated by his bodily resurrection and the fact that the grave is empty. So it not only validates his message and his um his um, authority to say that we we wouldn't be able to uh, really trust Jesus when he says fear not for I have overcome the world if he had not overcome sin and death how how silly would it be for us to trust him when he says that he will give us new life if he could not even give himself new life and so it validates the authority and the truthfulness of Jesus and his message but the resurrection also objectively demonstrates our forgiveness. Christ's death was effective for forgiving um, sins. How do we know this? Because not only did he rise from the dead, but the grave was empty. When we look at the Old Testament, when 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 we look at how God gave instructions for his priesthood to be structured. The high priest entering the Holy of Holies is alluded to in the book of Hebrews as we look back at who Christ is. And that's because Jesus, as our high priest, went into the quote-unquote Holy of Holies, offered himself as a sacrifice, and in the Old Testament, the only way that the human high priest would return from the Holy of Holies alive is if the sacrifice had been accepted. So the people who would see the high priest emerge from the Holy of Holies would know that the sacrifice had been um, accepted if the high priest returned alive. 
And so Jesus, rising from the dead after three days, and there being an empty tomb, means that his sacrifice of himself was accepted by a most holy God. The fact that the priest, our high priest Jesus, survived is evidence that his sacrifice had been accepted by God. We have evidence in Scripture, the, some of the first sacrifices being made, Cain and Abel. We see God accepting some sacrifices and not accepting others. He will let you know when, when, these, when these sacrifices are not accepted. But the sacrifice that Jesus made for us was accepted because our high priest is alive. So not only does it validate the authority and the truthfulness of Jesus, not only does it objectively demonstrate that we have been forgiven, that the sacrifice was accepted, but it also affirms that when we are told in 1 Corinthians 15 that we can look forward to a future resurrection and an eternal life, that Jesus has the, has the authority to say that because he has overcome sin and death. Not only has the sacrifice been accepted, but death has been defeated because Jesus overcame. We can trust in that because he did it himself. He's not asking us to do something he has not done. We don't do it in our own strength. We do it through his power. And then lastly, the resurrection is important because it assures the believer's position in Christ. Our position in Christ is assured because of what Christ did. He overcame sin and death. He overcame the world. And that is the power that we have to live our lives in him. He's not asking us to live the Christian life in our own power and in our own strength. He's asking us to dwell and abide in him in the same power that not only was able to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, but also the same power that can overcome death. And so the resurrection is so important for us to understand in the, in the work of Jesus because he was able to do what he did because of who he was. So the person of Jesus, the work of Jesus is important. It's important for us to know not only who Jesus is, not only what he did, not only why he did it. It's not only important for us to understand the past of Jesus, but it's also important for us to understand what is Jesus doing now? And so after the resurrection, the other thing that we need to understand is the ascension. That Jesus ascended to his Father and is now at his right hand, the writer of Hebrews says. And so what is the ascension? That is just Christ's body, Christ's physical body being taken up into heaven. And he is now seated at the right hand of God. He is our high priest. He is our intercessor. He went to prepare a place for believers. We read that in John 14. Thomas doubted it because that's what he does, and so many of us do on a regular basis. Jesus did not leave Thomas in his doubts, and he does not leave us in our doubts. He goes to prepare a place for us. And then he went to be glorified, which was important because when Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit coming, we, we talked about that in our last Delight and Doctrine session with Reed. In order for the Holy Spirit to come, Jesus had to leave. This other person in the Trinity needed to fulfill his role, and Jesus needed to, to fulfill his role by being physically at the right hand of the Father. And so, when the capital H Helper comes, it is after Jesus leaves. And so, us understanding where Jesus is now, at the right hand, interceding on our behalf, praying to the Father on our behalf, right? Speaking to God. When we speak to God, we can trust that Jesus is also speaking to God on our behalf. So, not only do we have access 
to the Father as heirs, as co-heirs with Christ. But we have Christ interceding on our behalf. And so we have what Christ did, and we have what Christ is doing, and we have who Christ is. And that is what frames how we think and how we talk about Christ. The Chalcedonian Creed, uh, coming in response to um, Apollinarianism and Nestorianism, denying the humanity of Christ or the full humanity of Christ, making sure that we all have a good understanding of not only who Christ is, but how he interacts with the other two persons of the Trinity. And so we'll close our time together with reading the the Chalcedonian Creed. It's not quite as long as the Nicene Creed. And it goes like this. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with us according to the manhood and all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father, according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, and Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged, being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same God and only begotten. God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. And so we can rest in knowing that as this creed says, the one and the same Christ, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, that Christ is Lord. And Christ did what he said he did. Now, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks diving into everything that Scripture has to say about Christology, but I hope this has been a good surface level. This has been a good um, introduction a uh, good overview. Hopefully we were uh, well-rounded in how we looked at who Christ is. And hopefully as we have gotten to delight in the doctrine of the church together, this has created uh, questions and discussions for you as you seek to grow in your knowledge and your faith in him. I had a uh, systematic theology professor who said, that even if you never sit in a seminary classroom, everyone goes to, goes to seminary. And if you think that you don't need to go to seminary, then you're already being taken to seminary by somebody without even knowing it. As Christ followers, we are all called to be disciples. We are all called to learn. We are all called to dive in deep to what Scripture has to say, to what the church has had to say about that scripture over time. And then one thing that as you look at systematic theology, maybe there are some things that might not be explicitly stated in scripture. There might be something that in a modern context and time frame, that specific thing has not been stated in scripture. And so Scholars and church leaders over time have had to draw conclusions based on the truth of Scripture and maybe tie some common threads throughout Scripture. I think that's an amazing tool that, that God has given us of, 
of being able to look at his scripture over time and that it speaks into our modern world in in the exact same way that it spoke into the world that Jesus lived in. His truth is not only truth in the first century. His truth is true now. And so as you dive in deep, just know that just because something has been restated for a modern audience doesn't make the truth of Scripture any less authoritative than it was when Jesus was first saying it, when it was first written. The councils that we reference, the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, gathered in response to false teachers. And the false teaching ended up, as you dig into it, it's justified through Scripture. And so the proper weighing of Scripture connected to a local body of Christ-centered believers, Bible-believing believers who weigh not only what they read, but what they sing, what they teach, what they pray by Scripture. I hope that this has been an encouraging time as we look at who Jesus is. And I hope that you'll continue to join us as we delight in doctrine two more two two more times. My name is Trey Gibson, and I am the student pastor at First Baptist Tothin. We've had a blast hanging out together today. Hope you all have a great day.